Well, good morning, everyone. We've gone from a day, yesterday, an experimental day of being in complete silence. So we kind of all experience what it would be like in a day of a Trappist monk. Just listening to God, uh-huh. rather than the human voice. Um, language is a wonderful gift that we have as human beings and it can be so constructive and yet it can be so destructive at the same time. It can point towards connection, wisdom, compassion um, or it can cause wars and disconnection and uh, misunderstanding. The title of this talk today is um, Listening with the Heart. Um, Words are okay too, as well as non-words. But as human beings we tend to be rather top-heavy and uh, one of the, the outcomes of Zen practice, you know, where we drop below this conceptual level and stop believing in our thoughts as real, is that we then have a chance to listen with the heart, uh-huh. which is a, a, non, a non-conceptual kind of experience, or it's a connective kind of listening, very different to just listening with the mind. Before um, session started, I was having a conversation with Jan um, about uh, Dadiri, which is the Aboriginal Dadirian mindfulness, and Dadiri is the Aboriginal word which is translated as um, inner deep listening and quiet, still waiting and awareness. Mm-hmm. Has a resonance with what we're doing today. And in particular, um, that deep listening was a, was a listening to nature and reconnecting with nature. And so it's not just a, an inner listening to one's thoughts and emotions and feelings and inner stories, but it turns outwards into a connection, a listening with the heart to nature. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting the word um, quiet, still waiting and awareness. Waiting. Quiet, still waiting. Waiting without grasping for something to occur. Mm -hmm. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Often when we're impatient, we're, we're waiting for something, even in zazen, do you know, in these long periods of zazen, there can be this waiting for something. Waiting for God to speak to me, say something wise. But God's speaking to you all the time. Mm-hmm. Waiting for enlightenment, waiting for a flash of insight. Well, it's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. What have you got to wait for? Waiting. Do you know um, what we're waiting for is whatever. And you know the word that the word whatever is used 
these days. It's used as kind of whatever, which is this kind of cynical, disgruntled acceptance of what is that kind of is the meaning of whatever. But if we, if we take it out of that cynical context and just go back and use the language of whatever, then what are we waiting for? Whatever. Hmm? Whatever is the next thing that arises, the next thing that comes along. Mm-hmm. Whatever. That's the nature of um, inner, still waiting that's not grasping for something to occur. And hopefully that's what we, we settle into through doing session. We're, we're always goal-seeking. We want something to finish or to get somewhere. And hopefully what happens, what we realise through our experience of doing session is um, that we drop into non-grasping, just waiting for the next thing that comes along. The next blowfly to come past. The next creak of the door. The next rustling of the wind in the trees. That's all. Mm Perhaps important um, this point in talking about Dadiri to reflect on um, the Aboriginal culture that existed right here where we're sitting and in this country and its surrounds for thousands and thousands of years. And the name of the tribe that lived in this district was the Waramai tribe. And they this tribe lived sort of from focused around the Port Stephens area and up as far as Foster and around to Gloucester. Uh And what you could imagine is that, I don't want to over-idealise Aboriginal culture, I'm sure they had their problems too because they're human beings, but they had a culture where Dadiri was part of that culture, which was a quieter culture without all of our busyness and technology and so on, a quite a culture that was living with nature and connected with nature, where there was a lot more time to just be, just sit and be still, notice a leaf, look at a leaf, wonder about a leaf, respect a leaf, see an ant crawling by, just be in, in wonder and awe and respect of that connection with the natural world that sustained them and um, that culture went on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before we came here and we're coming back to the same place and doing something similar in our own same way to what actually was happening here for a long long time before we came um, as some of you know, um, my, ham- my family has a historical connection with this particular area and my great-great-grandfather Robert Dawson was the first white man to actually create a, a settlement in this area with the Australian Agricultural Company and he named Stroud and Gloucester and the places around here. And um, so he was one of the first waves of Europeans who invaded 
this place mm -hmm. and took possession of it. Um, so he was part of that. And, uh, but I'm also proud to say that he, he settled here with the Aboriginal people in a, in a non-violent manner, in a very compassionate manner. And there's a lot of mutual respect and friendship actually developed out of that interaction, even though he was on their land. Um, and I just want to reflect on that and just reflect on just the, just the extraordinary um, immensity of time through which another culture of human beings like ourselves did something similar to what we're doing today in this context mm -hmm. in their own different way, different words, different stories, but connected with the present moment in a quiet, non-grasping, respectful, appreciative kind of way. Now, it's very easy to listen to nature um, because it doesn't argue back with you, doesn't contradict you, um, and it's not irritating. And, and being with nature is not um, usually a source of suffering for us as human beings, you know, um, unless we experience some kind of pain of being stung by a, an ant or whatever. But it's not usually a source of suffering in the sense we use suffering or dukkha in the Buddhist sense. And when we reflect on it, where our greatest source of suffering comes is from relating to other human beings. Mm -hmm. Because other human beings are deluded just like us. Mm -hmm. And other human beings believe their thoughts and their stories and so their facts just like us. And between the whole lot of us, um, we live in our thoughts and our beliefs and our stories about ourselves and others, and we convey it through language, and we cr create a right old mess of suffering through all of that. So it's listening to nature is the easy part, um, but listening to others, well, first of all, listening to our own nonsense, right? And then listening to others um, is a much more difficult task indeed. And like I said, it's the, it's, the, it's the source of where a lot of our suffering comes from. If I reflect on my work, particularly working with couples, where two human beings who have loved one another or have loved one another once um, come in and they're creating suffering between the two of them. And um, one, one of the interventions I've developed out of this work, which often works very well with people, and they, and they quite often get it, is that they realise, I point out to them that they're caught up in thinking about the faults of their partner all the time, and they ruminate it on it all the time. They go over it in their mind, they've created a story about the other person and they believe that story to be really true. Both people are doing it to one another. And then 
um, they think about it all day, and then when they meet up, um, they're looking. They're, they, they're looking at their partner with a critical look on their their face because they're those thoughts have impacted on the way that they behave, you know, about what they're about to say. And the other person picks up the critical face and, and then they, and that triggers off a reaction to, between people. They start projecting onto them critical thought, each other critical thoughts, and off it goes, right, into a negative experience or into an argument. Mm-hmm. And um, what I encourage couples to do individually is I don't want them to get into the, the right and wrong of whether the facts of their partner are, are right or wrong, but rather get them to really focus on how destructive it is to go round and round and round in the story, hour after day, hour, day after day, criticising the faults of their partner, and how that thinking then gets solidified into actions. And I encourage people to do something along the lines of what we're doing now, is that label the critical thoughts of the partner, let them go, come back to the present moment, chopping the vegetables, just breathing, driving the car, rather than getting caught up in it all the time. And people report back to me when they've actually committed to this and they've done it over a week or two, that it's really shifted something and they realise how much they're being caught up in the stories that they've created about their partner. And it doesn't allow any fresh air to come in, because that's all you see, is the projection each time. So it doesn't matter whether your partner smiled at you, if you've got this critical voice projected onto them, you won't even see it, or you would deny it, or not recognise it. So it's so important when we bring this practice into human relationships, that we bring it into being present with others. It's the greatest gift that we can give ourselves and other people to just be present without believing all the thoughts that we've created about ourselves or for them. And then you have intimacy. That's what intimacy is. It's like a a connection. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you can converse and you can put it into words, but that's... The separateness is gone, there's a fundamental connection, even if that connection's a difficult connection, it's a connection. It's worth reflecting on a few Buddhist teachings here to get a bit more understanding of this. I think nearly all of you probably um, have heard of the Buddha's teaching of the first arrow and the second arrow. So a a first arrow is painful, you know, if it hits you, right, or if if someone close to you or your partner or someone in the street swears at you or abuses to you, it's painful, right? Um, But the second arrow is all the thinking and the stories and so on that come out of that first pain, the stories of unfairness or victimhood or whatever it might be. And the second arrow, as the Buddha taught, is more painful than the first arrow. Uh And that's what we get caught up in. That's what we get caught up in, in the language that we use and the way we express ourselves with others and how they express themselves to us. And if you reflect on another Tibetan Buddhist teaching that we've talked about here many times, the eight worldly winds, pleasure, pain, 
praise, blame, gain, loss, fame, and um, fame and um, uh, well, ignominy anyway. Uh, they're all variations on grasping and aversion, but when you reflect on nearly all of them, they're to do with human interaction. Like the most the obvious ones are appraise and blame to do with words. Um, fame, you know, loss of reputation to do with human beings. Gain and loss, am I successful or not? Do I look successful in the eyes of other people? Human interaction. Is another person going to give me pleasure or are they going to give me pain? Most of these eight worldly wins are all to do mainly with human interaction. And again, to repeat myself, with all the thoughts and beliefs that human beings become deluded by and fixated on and then project onto the world. So what we're doing most of the time when we're disconnected from others is that we're listening with the mind. And what this practice helps us to do is to get out of the mind, get into the body and listen with the heart. And when we listen with the heart, we should not underestimate um, the power of healing that can come out of that to heal suffering, you know, and misunderstanding. When I reflect on my work in working with couples, is that, that I, really, I really just have a profession because um, other people don't listen to each other with their heart. If people were listening to, other, to each other with their heart, they wouldn't need to see someone like me. It's like with dentists, if people cleaned their teeth properly, they wouldn't need to go to dentists so much. Right? And, um, and then when people come to see me like for couple counselling where they're both suffering and in pain um, from a relationship, um, then what my job is, is to create a safe environment a safe, non-judgmental, non-violent use of words in which people can then start to be more vulnerable and, and open up to one another and not play the same power games of interruption and so on. And, and if it works, if we all work together well, that's what happens. They get to see there's a safe place they can go to, they can drop all of the power games, they can become vulnerable to one another and they can start listening to one another with their heart. And in, in simple terms, that's kind of how it works. But then my job's not completed. If, if all people did was come to this safe place, this little refuge to be able to be open to one another and they had to rely on it and they couldn't do it outside, well, then I failed. Uh -huh. Because my job would be for them to get an experience of that in a safe place so they create their own safe place at home and they don't need to come back and see me. The job's done when that occurs. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's how all of our Dharma training goes into actually working with the relationships that we're in. 
through the precepts, you know, through our use of language, which comes back to the way that we think. Mm-hmm. We create a safe place for other people to be because we're not threatening to them. Mm-hmm. And if we have the capacity to listen to the suffering of others, uh, really, really, like I said before, we cannot underestimate the power of just listening with the heart to someone's suffering and it dissolves. Right? You see it happening all the time in therapy. And uh, that means not just listening to the story, that's, that's listening with the mind. It's listening to the storyteller and the emotions of the storyteller and the suffering of the storyteller. So when we listen to the heart, we listen to the storyteller. Sometimes conversations between people um, need to be very focused and they have an outcome like a meeting. Um, and so they're very structured. Um, but oftentimes, like particularly between people who are friends or are intimate with one another, a lot of the conversation is just unstructured and unfocused. And you just talk with about whatever arises. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And I think of it like um, the shikantaza of relationships. Mm-hmm. Not actually working on anything in particular. You just whatever arises, that, that's where you connect, that becomes the source of the conversation. And that's what intimacy is. But that's a very different, a, a mindfulness-based intimacy is very different from the kind of intimacy that people think is intimacy, that's, that's sort of conveyed through the media and through pop songs and so on. And I've used this example before, but there's a very big difference between a couple walking down the road together or through a bush track and and they have to know what the other person's thinking and feeling all the time, you know, and they sort of have to have to be knowing all the time, you know, the other person's focused on them, what they're thinking, what they're feeling about me and they're checking each other out all the time. There's a kind of a, an anxious kind of grasping but some people think that's what intimacy is having to know all the time what your partner is thinking about you or feeling about you. When you think of a a couple who are settled in themselves, you know, who are being mindful and present, then they'd have a sort of, they'd be walking together, they'd be touching as they walk down the road, holding hands maybe, maybe sometimes separate, and they're both connected to the moment and they're, and they're not worried about the other, what the other person's thinking or feeling about them. They're both enjoying the experience of walking down the road together and they talk about whatever. You know, the kookaburra that flies past or that flower there mm-hmm. or that child that walked past. And there's a sharing of what's there in common rather than this anxious worrying about what the other person's thinking and feeling all the time. And that's a kind of mature intimacy you know, that develops between couples. When you um, 
when you reflect on what our experience is today doing session together in this place in Stroud, which we call Stroud, which had another name many, many years ago, there's a wonderful confluence of influences coming together here. We're sitting, practicing what we call Sazen or mindfulness, which is similar and resonant with Dadiri. So it's like we're sitting in this ancient Aboriginal land with this culture that Dadiri was a part of. And nearly all of us, not all of us, but nearly all of us come from a European background. And if we haven't come from a European background, we've probably had a European education. So we come from this very rich European background um, where language is very forefront in the whole thing concepts, language, and we've done wonderful things with it, as, as well as harmful things with it. But it's this wonderfully rich culture that's based on logic and concepts and, and language. And here we are, kind of European background or European influenced, you know, sitting in this ancient Aboriginal land, practicing an Asian religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All these wonderful confluence of the ancient Aboriginal land, European background, Asian spirituality coming together and they all come together and they resonate together in some way. Um, So we really have an embarrassment of riches, don't we, when we think of all of those things coming together. But what it's teaching us, what the Aboriginal culture is teaching us and what the Asian Zen Buddhist culture is teaching us is maybe as Europeans we're we're a bit too heavy up here in the head, top heavy. Need to come down to here. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean we have to forget that but we need to drop down into here and listen with the heart. And, and when we listen with the heart, then we alleviate a lot of the suffering that our um, overactive mind creates for us. 